This is Broadcast, Talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. Hello and a warm welcome to the show. I'm Jake Cantor. Coming up this week, we look ahead to the referendum. Would the UK TV industry be better off in or out of Europe? Some thoughts on that. Plus, we ponder the plight of the X Factor and mull the findings of Dame Janet Smith's review into Jimmy Savile. Also on the show, the executive producer of First Dates takes us behind the scenes of Channel 4's popular dating format. And finally, our usual brace of previews. We shine a light on BBC Two's dark comedy Stag and ITV's Davina McCall, Life at the Extreme. That's all coming up on Talking TV from Broadcast. In the studio this week, Broadcast editor Chris Curtis and Mr Stephen D. Wright. How are we doing, gents? Uh, very well, thank you. I too am healthy. Good, good, <laughs> extremely healthy. <laughs> uh, well, I've been up since seven o'clock this morning, combing through the Dame Janet Smith report, which mm. is sitting in front of us, mm. the heft of it. A page turner. Yeah. <laughs> well, How many 1,220 pages, to Can't be precise. pick it up, can't put it down. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. No, it's it, it's an enormous and damning document. It's like it's like a pile of telephone directories. We'll drop what? it on the desk for you listeners. It's 1220 pages. Wow. Uh, 372,400 words. Oh my god. Basically exonerates the BBC and uh, senior management at the time of mm. uh, of I think that's of a, wrongdoing. That's my they, legal response. Mm. They say that uh, senior management and the BBC is a, a body corporate was unaware of his actions. She chose to draw the line at producer level. She right. said producers were aware of specific allegations, mm. but these were never escalated to heads of department. Had they been escalated to heads of department, she would have concluded that the BBC as a corporate entity would have been responsible for this and would have had to have acted and if it didn't then it would have been accountable i mean the irony is when you're when you become a producer one of the first things you realize is that in law the producer and the exec producers and the company or whatever are responsible mm. you know if you if there's you know particularly health and safety and as a producer you are the first line of responsibility but it goes up it doesn't stop at the producer so, so there's a few examples that she pulls out. Actually, Savile's final act of abuse took place on Front Row in 2006, um, God, which was hosted by Mark Lawson, and he actually witnessed the attack take place. But the victim and Mark communicated it to the editor of Front Row, but the victim was not keen for it to get escalated further and therefore nothing was done about it at the time. The other one that it mentions is the Louis Theroux documentary in 2001 mm-hmm. uh, where he heard credible allegations from uh, a girl who was abused uh, when she was 15 years old and uh, Louis communicated it to the executive producer at the time which was David Mortimer who's mm-hmm. now the senior vice president of, of Factual and Entertainment at NBC mm-hmm. but they made a decision at the time to protect their source the source involved made very clear to them that uh, she did not want it reported to the BBC or the police yeah. without her consent mm-hmm. and in both those cases Dame Janet Smith says that uh, David Mortimer, Mark Lawson, the editor of Front Row, Louis Through, all acted appropriately. It's essentially, you just told the same story twice there, kind of, which is this powerful figure, Savile, you know, abused 
young people, junior people, people that, that there's such a disparity in, in terms of power. And, and, and then that, that person, the victim, says, oh, I'm not, I'm not sure I really mm. want to progress this or actually do, do, have I really got the desire to, to push for it to go further. And actually, you could imagine that being the repeated tale. Well, that time is, that's time a classic tale again. of all rapists and abusers, you know, pick on the weak and, and do, you know, and dominate them mm. to the point where they can't action anything. Mm. But she says that's both a cultural failing mm. yeah. and, and a failing on the part of the BBC, which doesn't have or didn't have the systems in place to properly encourage and apply rigour to complaints. I yeah. mean, has this, though, now drawn a line under it completely or is this the beginning of the next sort of investigation, the next accusation? Well, I mean, you know... Because this didn't just go on at the BBC. No. Celebrities particularly in the music business and, and, and television, were able to have sex with impunity with you know hundreds of desperate teenagers. That was the culture of the 70s yeah. and the 80s and probably the 90s as well. For the BBC, is this the finish or is this the, sort of the beginning of the... The, the, the you know the sort of the the witch finder general years do you know what i mean the fi- the final chapter maybe i don't know i mean look mm. there's allegations reported today mm. about uh, tony blackburn who is not named in this report but the mirror was first to reveal last night that he is uh, one of the people mentioned mm. uh, as far as some well, of the daily mail's running a story saying that he is, has been sacked been sacked personally by Tony well Hall. he he has issued yeah. a statement i've got that statement which says yes i have i've been sacked by the BBC, but hasn't been given yeah. any reasons. The BBC, and it's a very robust statement as well, isn't it? Yeah, extremely robust. Very not, robust. Not, 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 not missing. I should say, as we as we record, the BBC hasn't commented, but um, in fact, as we speak, Tony Hall uh, is giving a press conference on all of this and will, I'm sure, address the allegations around Tony Blackburn. Yeah. I think, yeah. Uh, you know, you look at all this and you think there's two things as well. There is no doubt that there are countless examples of historical abuse that went on within the BBC and across the whole entertainment industry. And it's vital that is investigated and that, and that where possible, justice is done. And then there's the sort of issue of contemporary, you know, where we are now. Mm. And... There is still, and I'm, you know, obviously Savile is at one extreme of this. There is still in telly a culture of indulging talent. Of course. To a potentially dangerous degree. Mm. Now, that might be that, that actually maybe a senior piece of talent, you know, speaks to a runner in a really derogatory or demeaning way. Is that the same as historic, you know, sexual abuse? Of course it isn't. But there is, there is something, TV could be better, this isn't just the BBC, TV could be better at creating an environment where talent is well looked after, well managed and given the freedom uh, to create great work without being indulged mm. in quite the way that it is at the moment. And I think... Uh, no it, more monsters, please. No more monsters. Well, look, we've seen the outcome of this only this week mm-hmm. with, uh, you know, Jeremy Clarkson settling this... A uh, year later. You know uh, I mean? He did apologise at the time, to yeah. be fair to Jeremy Clarkson. All right. <laughs> Difficult to You're be not... fair to Jeremy I mean, these are not the same things. <laughs> they're, they're, they're completely but, different. Well, no, but it's, it's not the same thing, but, but the indulging the talent to the point where they become monstrous human beings is exactly yeah, what yeah. we're talking about. I mean, all, everyone hears um, the stories, you oh, know, yeah. of... of I find it difficult to watch some of the biggest names in entertainment because I know what they're like in real life. It's very difficult when you see people being funny on stage and knowing that they are demonic the minute the cameras, you know, stop recording. 
I really want you to name some names. But, uh, <laughs> I will, I'll do that. I'll, <laughs> my fil- my any- journalistic filter is saying, don't, yes. please don't. No, <laughs> my legal filter, <laughs> my, my uh, desire for broadcast to remain okay. unsued. On, mm. on that note, on that bombshell, <laughs> uh, let's move on. Uh, with Britain braced to go to the polls on the 23rd of June uh, for the EU referendum, broadcast has been asking what a break from Brussels might mean for television. Uh, the answer, it seems, is uncertain. Uh, There are early concerns that it could increase the cost of trading, while there are also fears that UK indies and distributors may be on the wrong end of fluctuating exchange rates. Uh, But it's not all supposition. Production tax credits from countries like Ireland and Belgium will almost certainly be closed to the UK. Uh, On the plus side, however we'll be able to continue to compete in Eurovision. (laughs) (laughs) Thank God for that. What do you make of this, gents? Uh, I'm not sure that broadcast will be coming in or out uh, in in quite the way that Mr Whittingdale uh, has done. It's still very early and people aren't sure. The general consensus from the people that we've spoken to is that coming out of Europe could potentially introduce barriers that would be damaging, difficult, annoying, frustrating, costly, you know, Businesses want an easy life. Businesses want to be able to trade as freely as they as they can. And certainly, um, when we're speaking to producers and distributors, they are concerned that uh, Brexit would um, make their life more complicated, which is something they could really do without. John Wingdale clearly doesn't believe that, though. He, he, he the, the suggestion is that he believes that Brexit is good for the creative industries. Well, is that? I don't know. It strikes is me... Is it not implicit in what? I think mm, I think the bits I've read from Whittingdale uh, or seen him interviewed is suggesting it's more to do with uh, sort of social factors than, than economic ones. The, the cabinet and um, all, all MPs are being allowed to sort of choose their own personal position on this. I don't think Whittingdale's position is a DCMS position. It's a John Whittingdale position. I don't think he's taken that that view within the best interests of the creative industries or not. It, you know, I don't think that's a factor. I think it's a uh, you know he, he, it's a long held personal personal view and I think immigration is kind of the, the topic that's um, top top of his list. See I think from a TV perspective I think we've got nothing to worry about we dominate the world as it is culturally a Belgian you know tax break isn't going to stop a top drama being remade in, in a foreign speaking language uh, you know look at America we buy nearly all their telly we've got no you know problems buying in foreign TV the rest of the world does the same for us you know, we our shows run around the world. Formats are sold left, right, and centre. To me, that's the big, mm-hmm. the the big sort of uh, catch all that w- that will save us. You know, uh, whether or not it's more complicated to get a trade agreement, blah blah. But I think culturally, yeah. we produce the best formats, the best dramas, and everyone knows it. That's what the that's what the international markets are all about. Buying English language TV, really, very rarely do we get the others in return. Maybe we won't see the next Killing or Swedish Noir. Because somebody got annoyed because they had to show a passport when they were crossing the, ta- the, the, the you know, the, getting on Eurotunnel or something. But they already do that. So it's like, mm. I think it's a little bit, bit of anti-Brexit drama. I should point out that I am very UKIP at the moment on the Brexit. I was going to so. say, you sound yeah. like it. <laughs> <laughs> I'm well, I was, going, I was expecting here. the opposite. <laughs> no, no, but I just, to me, it, it's about, the, it's a, to me, this is a cultural story rather than an economic one from a TV perspective. Yeah, and that's... That's yeah. the thing. And, and, and there might be... Uh, painful, you know, negotiations and little annoyances. But we managed it before. We'll, you know, if we leave the EU, people are still going to watch the X Factor or the X Factor. Also, the suggestion this week that this can end up in protracted uncertainty for the BBC and Channel Four. 
There was a consensus. Whenever you spoke to any sort of politicos or um, uh, sort of corporate affairs types at the big broadcasters, um, there was a, a sort of consensus had emerged that we were going to get a BBC white paper pretty soon after the May local elections. And there is now a feeling that, well, the gap between the May local elections and June 23rd is not very big. Will government and civil service and the, the machines of, gov- of government be, be able to squeeze that in if they're in full Euro uh, referendum mode? So I think there's some concern around that. And I think Channel 4 as well, you know, there's a huge uncertainty. And it's re- I think it's Channel 4 finding it incredibly frustrating that um, they worked quite hard to get some information, um, answer the questions that they were set by, by, by DCMS um, prior to Christmas get that information over with to, to allow DCMS to investigate everything. They've been making their case. DCMS has been listening to other interested parties who have been lobbying. I mean, we're now what, at the end of Feb. There is no timetable even in place. It's not, it's not even that we don't know what's going to happen to Channel 4. It's not, it's not clear when we're going to know what's going to happen to Channel 4. And I think that is becoming increasingly frustrating. OK, next up, the X Factor again. Yes, another busy fortnight for ITV's Juggernaut. And it's not even on air at the moment. Uh, out are Ollie Murs, Caroline Flack and Nick Grimshaw. And in, well, quite possibly Dermot O'Leary, with talks over the presenter's return said to be progressing well. Uh, writing in broadcast this week, executive producer Richard Holloway compared the X Factor to Coronation Street in that its enduring quality makes it part of the fabric of the nation. Stephen, mm. do you agree with that? Just, I've got the same pursed lip response to this <laughs> as I did to the uh, Dame Janet Smith uh, report. It's a good, it's a good line that it's uh, as you know, it's part of the nation. But all good things must come to an end. And unfortunately for the X Factor, that was about three years ago when the show started to stink on air. He's not wanting to keep it because it's good. He's wanting to keep it because it's a massive money spinner. They should admit that it's it's out, outlasted itself. All great formats come to an end. You can't just keep it going, particularly as it doesn't get refreshed, as he's claiming to. You know, it really is the same old sob story. That's the problem. Talent... And and tears is a great is a winning format that can run forever, but not the same hmm. stereotypical responses, the same lines from the judges. I mean, that it's it's as basic as that. If they really did refresh it, then I'd be you know I'd be really happy to watch it because it is when it works, it works brilliantly. But it it was I don't know if it's bad producing, bad presenting, or just boredom. You know, it it felt so tired last yeah. year, and and it has been tiring for a while. So. It's very difficult to, you know, you don't want to stab a a show in the heart, but at the same time, resting it and bringing it back would be would be my, you know, not killing it off, but just pulling it off screen for a year or two, you know, or really radically changing it. I have been over the years a huge X Factor fan. I think it was it was absolutely at its best a great. I've watched every series, every episode of every series. The last series was not good. It was sort of, and I, look, I've never made a show in my life, so you could turn around and say, well, who are you to say? I thought it was technically poor television. You know, there were lots of missed cues and sound problems and people stood in the wrong places. And, and I mean, the live begging format change they brought in and got rid of within a, within a show, you know, that sort of stuff. Yeah. It was, it, you know, there was an air of desperation about the last series. And everyone, and it, you don't have to be a TV expert, you don't have to be a TV producer, you just have to be a viewer. We Viewers are very intelligent. They get it. They pick it up. Mm. And the fans of The X Factor are obsessive. So if you do watch it, you've watched all of them. And so you can see the, 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 the drop-off 
in quality. You can you can hear the same response, the same. Yeah. You smashed th- this kid. You know, I think all, Steven's you know, spot spot on. One million percent. Yes. How many times have we heard that? The, the, the judging the, the 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 judging panel. I think yeah, that needs to be looked at. It, it, it is ripe for a proper refresh. There's this kind of received wisdom. I think that oh, ITV's bought the voice. X Factor's ratings are in decline. It, the writing's on the wall, X Factor's going to go. I, I will be amazed if ITV does not extend X Factor's contract beyond its current run. It's got one more year on this three-year deal. Now, will they strike another three-year deal? Maybe they won't. The balance of power feels like it's shifted a little bit. It used to be that Psycho, Fremantle can't say, well, this is what we want. Uh, you know, the budget needs to go up and we want to have more pyrotechnics, blah, blah, blah. And ITV would say, certainly, mm. thanks very much. Keep, mm. keep bringing us 13, 14, 15 million viewers. That, that balance of power may have shifted. But... Two things. Consolidated figures of over 8 million. I don't, 8. million. I don't know what ITV is going to have that it can run for that length of time that's going to get comparable figures. I doubt the answer is anything. And I do believe that there is an opportunity and it will be difficult. It's not. It's going to be super, super hard. But if you could try to find the missing alchemy to get it back to, to, to where it was, maybe that maybe that those days have gone. But certainly some of the more hackneyed elements, the... The, the, the solution is certainly not to bring back Dermot O'Leary. No, no offence against Dermot, he's a brilliant presenter. But bringing back old format points and old faces is not the way to refresh a new brand. You know, the brand, it's, that's, the, that's the sort of the circle of despair again. You know, because if, if Dermot came back, he would be great. But everyone would go, well, it's like it was before. Mm. You see what I mean? It's like if you are going to do a, a, a total refit, then, you know, tear out some of the fixtures and fittings. Make it different. Change it. Make the audience do more of the Some judging. Of the humor da, 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 back. Da, 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 it yeah. used to be a really yeah, funny exactly. show, The X Factor. It took itself it very seriously it, the last it, series. It, 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 has lo- it has lost yeah. a I think it will stay for it. I think it will I blame be, Gary uh, Barlow for that. When he came <laughs> in, it started to become po faced and, and less fun. That was absolutely <laughs> fantastic. <laughs> One million percent. You smashed it. We, ladies and gentlemen, we found two new judges for The X Factor <laughs> Messrs. D. Wright and Cantor. <laughs> okay. Uh, a couple of commissions to chew over. Uh, first up, we'll stick with ITV which last week piloted live at the Trattoria, a TFI Friday-style format in which Dermot O'Leary, yep, him again, and Gino De Campo uh, play host to an Italian restaurant. Mamma mia. Mamma mia. sounds great. (laughs) I don't know. I read the description and I went, hmm. It's very difficult to tell what this is going to be like without seeing it. It sounds awful, but it sounds funny. So it could be great. I hope it is great. I mean, I actually think um, it's from your your big brother brethren. Well, this is it. Do you, do you know, Dan Baldwin is really and, good. And hungry good bear. TV. You know, it's like well, I, who knows? I mean, you don't know until you see it. It could be, you know, lot will rest on the sort of chemistry of the co-host. The chemistry. I mean, exactly. It's like a, they're big powers. It's like too. a sort of zoo format I mean, kind I of remember, thing, right? It's like a TFI. Gordon Ramsay did it mm. on Channel Four. You know what was it called? The F word or something yeah, like that. Yeah, yeah. That sort of live studio Top Gear cooking. It's like the cooking part always was the bit that I couldn't really be bothered with, you know. I don't think they're going to be doing, like, formal recipes. Yeah, that's the, that's, the, I mean, that's the bit that feels a bit eggy to me, you know. Yeah. I mean, if they get some good guests on and give them all a nice glass of... Glass uh, of vino. Yeah. And, and a pizza. Exactly. Yeah. What's not, to, what's not to like? I don't know. You need to see more details. What is interesting is it doesn't feel like an obvious ITV no, commission over the yeah. last few years, and it suggests maybe they're going to try yeah. a few new things. It was, take, it, it, it was in with ITV before Kevin Ligo 
was elevated to uh, director of television. So it'd be interesting to see which way he goes on mm-hmm. it. Um, second up, and I choose this especially for you, Chris, uh, Mental Media is investigating the rise of the hipster for BBC4. Oh. Oh. Uh, the one-off, doc- <laughs> <laughs> one-off documentary oh, will be presented by cultural commentator Peter York. You love this, don't you? No, I just didn't understand it, really. <laughs> why, why, why is BBC4 making a show about hipsters? Because what, five years late? Well, I didn't know why BBC... I, what do BBC4 viewers like? They like canals, um, and they um, like sort of docu- uh, foreign language drama. Do they like one-off docs about, about hipsters with Peter York? Mm. Stephen, as the original hipster. As the original hipster, and somebody who actually sat and watched Peter York's Edinburgh show last year, which is what this is based on, where he talks about oh, how right. terrible the oh, word... How convenient for us. <laughs> how terrible the word authentic is, mm. and um, what an unauthentic word that actually is it's an interesting uh you know uh, uh, sort of treatise yeah yeah and it will be entertaining but it does feel a little bit late so it's not it's hardly groundbreaking but i guarantee it'll be good tv you know whether or not it's a bbc4 thing i mean peter york makes it more bbc4 yes the subject if it, it, I, I think it's not quite hipsters i think it's more what peter york is sort of saying about modern world and advertising and all that rubbish and he has got that, you know, to, to, to you know, he's nailed it. It's basically. kind of about the commoditization of authenticity, right? That it's, you repackage something as authentic you know, and that sell it back to someone. That doesn't sound as exciting as no, a documentary, right? Hipsters. No. hipsters sounds cool, and so that's what we're obviously going with. But whether or not a documentary on hipsters five years after the hipster phenomenon yeah. is cool, so we I think don't know. this might be being missold slightly by the press release. Possibly, possibly. Um, but I guarantee, if it's you know, Peter York, he knows what he's doing. Okay, well, we look forward to it. Uh, That's your news for this week. Thanks to Chris and Stephen. Valentine's Day may have been and gone, but love is still very much in the air here on Talking TV as we prepare to open the doors to first dates. Uh, Channel 4's dating show may be more than four series old, but it is still attracting new suitors all the time. The 2020 format pulled in record ratings around Valentine's, and now there's more series and further celeb specials in the offing. Executive producer Nicola Lloyd will be with us in a moment to talk about First Dates' charm, but first a clip. Mickey is looking for love, but has she found it in Arnie? Do you, ever, do you ever go out King's Road? Constantly. Yeah. I used to be always at Raffles and Jacks and Bluebird. Yes. I've gone out with people who aren't from the same background as me. It was definitely difficult and there was a lot of problems. You know, it's simple as where to go out, where to go for dinner. You can either go to Nando's or you can go to Nobu. It's a, it's a, it's a big jump, it's a big leap. We will have past you think we have? 100%. 100%. Are you sure you don't remember walking past this really good looking guy <laughs> thinking, <"Fuah." laughs> I don't think so. <laughs> so we have Nicola Lloyd, executive producer of First Dates. Uh, so you're all in the cut and thrust of uh, Series 4. How's yes. it going? <laughs> yeah, really good. We're just coming to the end of it, to be honest. And we've had um, 16 episodes that went out just before Christmas. I think it started in September, culminated in the Christmas special, where we had an engagement, which we were very proud of. Then we had five episodes that went out in January and um, culminated in the Valentine special that went out recently. And then we've got another six episodes up our sleeve, which will probably, at the moment, looks like they're going out in April. Talk us through the editing process. It yeah. sounds like quite a... 
complex and heavy working yes. schedule. I think they call it the American format of editing. But we have about 10 edits weeks going. So as soon as we finish the rig and we do the running orders for the episodes. So we plan pretty much the next sort of 20 episodes. And then we go in order and they go into individual story suites. There's a normal edit team in there that, that cut a story. And I imagine it's about 12 to 15 minutes, a first rough cut. So we've got 10 suites cutting stories for, for a couple of weeks. We sort of bank up as many as possible. Uh, and then we start the stitch, which is by far the probably the toughest role. What's on the, the stitch? The stitch is where... Um, bring it all together. They bring it all together. So our lead editor and our senior producer sit in there and um, they've got two weeks to cut a show. So if you imagine that we've got a bank of stories and they've kind of, they've got as big as possible and then we go, right, okay, stitch starts and they've got two, every two weeks we're turning over an episode and we've got two stitch suites going. So sort of every week we're signing off an episode basically when, when we get... You That's know, a lot of viewing, isn't it? It's a lot of viewing. Yeah, for me in particular and the series producer and series editor. I mean, at some points we're in five to ten viewings a day and then all the final post starts. We do try to cut quite close to transmission. So sort of the nature of the show is that people are going on first dates and the update cards at the end, I think, are what everybody's kind of holding, you know, holding out for. So the closer that we put that episode out, um, you know, as close to as, as close to filming as possible, then the better the update card is. If you get to the point where, you know, a story that you actually shot in August isn't going out until Christmas, then it's quite unlikely they're still together. So then we have to get quite colourful and creative with our update cards. The update <laughs> yeah. cards are always a little elusive, though, aren't they? <laughs> I know. And do you do that on purpose, just to uh, leave a bit of room for people to you know, yeah. interpret what's going on? I think so. I mean, there's a, it's a combination of factors. I mean, one is just the, the timing. Like, you know, they went on <clears throat> a date sometimes two months ago, and they might have gone for another drink or another couple of drinks, but by the time we're transmitting, they, they're not seeing each it's other anymore. It's fizzled out. It's fizzled out, and actually somebody's seeing someone else, and they don't want it to be, you know, they don't want to say they went on a second date so sometimes we can say uh, you know it's brilliant and they went on you know and they're, and they're more than happy for us to say what happened next uh, and on other occasions they're not so that's when we have to become a little bit more creative with the endings so I'm alright in saying you film 24 episodes in about 12 days yes and then so you've done that when did you do that for series 4 which we're in so now so for series 4 which was our biggest commission because previously to that series 3 was 12 episodes so yeah, it was doubled and that was the first time we'd done so many. So we configured the schedule in blocks of eight. So we filmed uh, eight episodes. We cast for eight episodes, filmed it. Five weeks later, filmed the next eight episodes. Five weeks later, filmed the next eight episodes. I think for us, it just felt more contained then. We could have sort of more control over what we were looking for. And the ones you're editing now are the, are the final batch, are they? Yes, yeah, the final batch. In fact, some of the ones we're editing now were filmed back in August. You know, some some in September and some in October. Um, How does that work in terms of if, if people are making cultural references? If a date's really strong and they're talking about something really current, they're likely to go in one of the, the first episodes that we cut because of the fact that it's current. And that's great for us. We absolutely love it when we get that kind of stuff. But most of the time, conversations are timeless, really, that they have, and they can kind of go anywhere. And, you know, I, I have to say, in an ideal world, we if we had you know, more money and more time, we'd film every single episode as if it was an individual episode in the restaurant. So there could be a lot more interaction between dates because of the nature of it. We've got a formula to how we put an episode together 
And um, within that, we include dates that have chemistry, that are like young and quite sexy and flirty. There'll be um, an older date, we refer to it as a golden oldie. There'll be a slightly textured date, which is, you know, maybe um, someone a bit geekier or unusual or with quirky hobbies. And then a date we refer to as Last Chance Saloon, which is actually our sort of favourite, which is someone in their sort of late 30s that is like, you know, still looking for the husband or the wife and, you know, wanting to have children. And that combination of those sort of five categories, there's more categories, but we try and make an, an episode with those in. So broadly speaking, every episode will have some of those elements. Yes, yeah. We wouldn't have an episode with six chemistry dates or or five golden oldies, you know, it wouldn't work. But because of the, the way that the logistics dominate the schedule, when we're booking people in for their dates, we, we can't, you know, we can't get the, the mix and the formula perfect. So we might have six chemistry dates in a row on the rig. And that's why we have to move them into different episodes. So for me, ideally, you know, we would be able to film an episode and um, edit an episode so that you've got that interaction. You've got the staff moments and Fred linking everything together. I I would say the biggest challenge for us is making sure that we're getting staff actuality, uh, moments with Fred, moments with Sam and Cece that speak to the themes that are going on within those dates. So when we cut it together, it feels like, you know, it's all happening in one day. And what's it like when you're filming? Are you you trying to keep tabs on things that are going well and identify some of those stories as early as possible? Yes. So the way we structure it, we have seven PDs that follow the dates on the rig and they do two dates a day. So in total, we're filming 14 dates a day uh, and they sit on the front row in the gallery and um, and they are just totally ensconced in their own dates, in their own world. And then I... <laughs> that must be quite <laughs> odd, just watching two people have dinner and I know. peering in. Do you know what? I've seen so many dates now. I, I, must, I, I haven't actually added... I must have seen over 300 dates since Do you sort of lose that sense of voyeurism after a while? I absolutely love it. I'm so nosy. I'm so addicted to chemistry and watching people get on that it's, it's it's you must have good dating tips it's amazing yeah I do I do I mean literally if I if I could put an in earpiece in someone's ear I could tell them exactly how to nail that date can we have a couple uh, what of the dating tips yeah um, listen I think that's one of the biggest the biggest tips. What people do is uh, when they're nervous, they come in with a sort of an agenda or they or they talk and they and they you can see the other person opposite them closing down and you think if you just stopped or just asked this question you, you know, I know that you've got so much in common because there's a reason why we matched you. But luckily, we do we do a little bit of matchmaking from behind the scenes. We can our, our trick, I suppose, is the um, producer mic check when we feel like somebody's been a bit nervous or they're not or they're not you know divulging the information that we know that they've you know they should be telling them well that's why we've matched them we call them out for a mic check and um the producer the pd you know has a little word with them and sort of says oh you know whilst you're here it's going great but why don't you talk about these things why don't you think about these things and um we do that quite a lot um just just a little subtle production technique yeah it's it's our producing technique because you know as much as it is great to watch two people sit down and have a date and sometimes you don't need to get involved, which is amazing. But quite often you do need to steer the story because you've matched them for a reason and um, and we're always looking for, and it's during the main course, we're always looking for that moment when they both connect over. It could be um, something emotional, something um, a loss that they've both been through or um, they're both huge fans of, you know... Robbie Williams or you know that could be anything but there's always that moment that we need to get and uh, if they don't get it themselves then you know, we give them a little bit of encouragement yeah so. and you wrote in broadcast um, mm. a couple of weeks ago that 
People are now treating you like a sort of bona fide dating service. Yes. That is a huge responsibility for us, actually, because, I mean, we are a dating agency. And, um, you know, since it started in series one, which I wasn't involved in, they they had interactive dating. So you could, the model was slightly different then, um, but you could call in and ask to date the person that you've just been watching that night. And then the next week you're there in the restaurant. And so it's obviously changed since then. But I would say since series three, when we did 12 episodes and we had quite a few matches, the trend of Tinder and dating apps started to change. Um, People were writing in saying, I really, really want to go on a a blind date. You know, I'm so sick of dating apps. I'm so sick of of current dating world. It's quite cold and it's quite difficult to meet people. And they'd watch our programme and see that you were going on a blind date. It's quite old fashioned. You're going to go sit down, have a meal. It just really appeals to people. We've got nearly 80,000 applications in our database. Oh, my God. I know. It's unheard of. On, on any other programme, I've never... I've, I, you know, I mean, it's a joy to have so many applications. And that's since April. That must be so, tough when you're casting, though, to, to mm, narrow that down to a list yeah. of people that you feel will be good for the show. Well, that's the skill of the casting team, really. We do do targeted casting, but really what our team is looking for is is to have that skill to be able to, you know, wheedle out the, the, the people that they want to put on the series. We've got about six researchers and four APs just on the casting team, a producer and a senior casting producer. And between them, they go through that casting database with a fine tooth comb and um, they see about 80 people every weekend. Uh, and then from there, we put through about 50. So our numbers are really high. Because of course, we could... so it's not easy to get a date on first dates. <laughs> no, it's not. It's actually not. But you know, and it's a shame because you know we do we want people to continue to you know to apply, but um, it's all getting to a point now. People are like, I I applied, I'm not heard back, and it's like because we've got so many to go through, you know. We and also we're constantly looking. We're looking to tell new stories. We've had loads and loads of dates, and each date and each match that we put together we want them to get we want them to fancy each other we want them to have a chance of finding love we also want to tell a story it it could be you know a couple from up north from yorkshire that never really come to london before and you know uh, are quite excited to be in a fancy restaurant and and that just in itself is just a really interesting dynamic to watch and then you might cut that against you know a city boy and a and a career girl who you know have five six dates a day a week um and and for me when you get to the stitch and you and you start you know knitting the episode together the intercut of of these different stories and these different places in britain and um these different diverse groups and ages and sexuality that's what makes it really special i think that's really what brings the show to life yeah and uh, so uh, it's obviously become a bit of a brand now and you're doing lots of other things yeah. Can you talk me through some of the uh, some of the other work yeah. you're doing here in the UK and, and abroad? Yeah, it's a global brand now because it's been sold in... It's 10 countries at the moment. Spain is the latest. They've just um, commissioned 64 episodes, which is a lot. Just Good a luck, smaller, Spain. Just a small little order there. <laughs> no, it's huge. Canada's going in for its second series. Um, you were involved in the US... I was involved in the US uh, one. Yeah, I, I went over there in May and I spent um, about four months making their series with NBC. And when um, does that TX... It should be TXing quite soon. On NBC. On NBC. Is it very different? Well, no, because I went, so I made it exactly the same. (laughs) You just took that formula. Yeah, I took the formula. It's different in all the different countries around the world. Some have have made it a half-hour show. Some have cast the staff. Not all of them use interviews from the staff. I think that's very much a British thing that we do. The challenge about doing something like that in America is because it's so huge, the country is so huge, that you can't just open the net 
of, of casting to the whole of the country, you've got to pick a couple of states. So we, we picked about seven different states and cast within those. So we could still match two people from Nashville and two people from Seattle and two people from New York. And it was really important that we did that because, it, you know, you're not going to have a chance going on a second date if you're on different sides of the country <laughs> yeah. in America. So, um, yeah, so that was really good. And then over here in the UK, we're doing um, our new series of 24 episodes, series five. Series five. Although I imagine if you're watching it on the telly, it'd probably be series seven because we've done, you know, they're in a split run all the time. But yeah, people for get us, confused. The yeah, listings mags are getting confused. We get confused <laughs> as well. Four of those episodes are celebrity episodes. So we're doing a celebrity series. Which, which garnered you some of your highest ratings, didn't it? When, yes. When you did that last year. Yeah, it did. It was Stand Up for Cancer. It went out on a Friday night at nine o'clock, which we love because I, I you know, I've always felt that it was a Friday night show. And nine o'clock is just, you know, more people are awake. It did really well. And based on the success of that, the the channel have commissioned another series. I think what all of us are quite surprised about in the celebrity version was it just felt like normal, real, vulnerable people telling their stories. And in actual fact, it didn't matter really who the celebrity was as long as they had an interesting story. And if the story's interesting, then it's then it's a great episode. So that's what we're um we're aiming for. We're doing four episodes at the minute and we've we've got probably about 10 celebrities booked already <laughs> uh, well we wish you all the best with this series which continues after Easter on Channel 4 <laughs> onwards now to some previews and I'm delighted that Stephen D. Wright and Chris Curtis are back on the talking TV sofa we shall start with ITV's Davina McCall Life at the Extreme during which the presenter turns her hand to natural history to see how animals survive in some of the harshest environments on earth produced by Plimpsoll Productions here, Davina meets a couple of orphan cheetahs in Namibia, but they're not as tame as she'd hoped. If they chase you, if they do mock charges, just stand. Just keep calm. I'm just going to stay near you, though. I'm good. Yeah. Okay. All right. They're young and wouldn't survive if they ran off, so for now she keeps them in a large enclosure. Oh, God. And as she can't exercise them out in the bush, Marlies has come up with an ingenious way of keeping them in shape. This is the pulley system, and you just put it on a car battery and... Make them run. So this is just forward and backwards. It's the kind of system used to get greyhounds to run round a track. Oh, look, they're off. And it's the perfect way for me to see them in action. This is brilliant. This is the most fun ever. <laughs> just like a ball of string to a kitten, the cheetahs find the lure irresistible. Who wants to start us on this? I'll, I'll have a bash at this. I found this show really confusing. It's sort of an, uh, you know, ITV stab at natural history with Davina. And I love Davina. I think she's a great, I think she's a great presenter. And I think, you know, Long Lost Family is absolutely brilliant. I mean, she knows nothing about natural history and she's incredibly enthusiastic about it. So it, it's kind of a science show with someone who knows nothing about science. And it's, it felt like it needed a co-presenter or something to... Tonally, it's really, really odd. There were some quite amusing and entertaining bits, but there was also quite a lot of... Davina making slightly inane comments. Can um, I paraphrase for you? It's a, it's a dog's dinner of a show, this, isn't it? Oh, <laughs> goodness sake. I actually enjoyed it. Tonally, it is slightly awkward because it's a travelogue with natural history, but there's this weirdly kind of formatted, uh, I'm here to find out about extreme yeah. life, yeah. which you kind of forget after a while yeah. and you don't really need it. But it's Davina... Doing doing what Davina does with very kind of lush shots and it's beautiful and it looks amazing lovely. natural history. So 
I actually really enjoyed it. And I thought that Davina's lack of scientific expertise mm. allowed me, you know, to use her as the everyman and, and therefore to go in. So when you did get her doing sort of what looked like ridiculous things, sticking, a, you know, taking her shoes and socks off in the Namibian sand uh, in the desert and then seeing which sole of her foot was burning, you know, was quite fun. Yeah, it was, was, you know, it, it was wasn't Attenborough, but it was a good attempt at an ITV going for, you know, I mean, it, it felt to me like a BBC Worldwide show. It had that kind mm -hmm, of feeling mm -hmm. that was quite lush, a little bit of, you know, science, not too much. So I think they should know. have done away with the science, to, to, to be honest, because what, there was nothing... They sort of have, really. I mean, it's, There it's, was nothing it's, that felt... Know, author at no point did I think Davina's... A passion of Davina's life has been to ex understand how animals can live in the most extreme environments all around the world. Now, I did completely believe that Davina quite fancied going around Africa and seeing some cheetahs, because mm. when she did see some cheetahs, you know she what? was... I, I, maybe I'm a simple soul. I, that was enough for me. Davina, you know, <laughs> making funny faces and the occasional funny remark. She's very funny, funny and, and engaging. Do you know what I mean? She that, is, that is, she's uh, brilliant she's, on telly. She's fantastic talent. The you best know, she, thing I can say about this show is it would have been brilliant if it was on CBBC. Uh, I don't. I mean, I, I look. I, I just. It was. Oh, maybe it, I'm being unnecessarily downbeat. It didn't feel but, very grown up. I think you're. I think uh, you're. At one point, she says, "Yeah, overheating's really bad." <laughs> yeah, I'm like, yeah. You don't say. You're in the middle of the Namibian desert. She also. I mean, uh, the thing you. is, it, the problem is, is, are you comparing this to the gold standard of that kind of the? BBC it does, it's not aspiring unit? to that. I think that's and fair that's enough. the thing. It's like it, that's 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 what we're used to. We're used to amazing, you know, life on earth type stuff. And this is this is ITV doing something that's sort of not Joanna Lumley and Cats, but it's going towards life on Earth. So it's like it's aiming well, very watchable. Davina, I could watch her running barefoot in a desert anytime. Mm -hmm. I mean, I re you know I did enjoy it as a as a piece of TV entertainment, not as a science theory yeah. or a whatever. Uh, it, it was. I thought it was great. You're not going to learn anything, but you might be entertained. There was a nice bit where she's running with a cheetah, and uh, the cheetah has to have a lie down. And um, uh, Davina brands the cheetah a lightweight, and it's that, that's the kind of that's what you're getting. You get you're getting D Davina sort of celebrate. It's, it was ever so slightly partridgey, but um, lots of <laughs> lo lots of fun. Okay, Davina McCall. Life at the Extreme begins on Monday, the 29th of February at 9 p.m. on ITV. Our final stop this week is at BBC Two, which is planning to air Stag, a dark comedy about a stag do gone wrong in Scotland. It is written and directed by Jim Field Smith, who was behind James Corden's successful comedy The Wrong Man's. Uh, and in this clip from the first of three instalments, school teacher Ian is introduced to the rest of the gang. Okay, everybody, this is Ian, uh, Fran's big brother. How small is Fran? <laughs> <laughs> Ian, this is Ledge, best man. Oldest buddy. Lugrove, Harrow, Durham. Roger back. This is Mexican. He works on the floor below us. Aitken, prep school. Niels, who works for the Copenhagen office. Yeah, Denmark. Cosmo, uh, known since Halls. Does something in the media. Development producer. And uh, then, of course, there's Wendy, who uh, looks after our books. Oh, what, like uh, some sort of freelance librarian? No, he's just our accountant. Deutsche well, Bank. As a, as a development producer, I, uh, I particularly identified with that character. But no, I, it started off and I hated the first five minutes because these people are so loathsome. They are so, awful, all of them. And the development producer, easily the worst by miles, that smugness. And then slowly, slowly as it started, it started to pull me in. And it is as dark as dark can be. It's a, it's a, you know, it's a real, whew, 
tonally, it, you know, I mean, not funny quite often. It's 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 a uh, it's I can't sort of say really what happens without spoiling it, but it's it's a good watch. I mean, you can see the influence of the wrong man's in there. That kind of big, the big sort of filmic style, yeah. uh, more drama than necessarily comedy, but with comic moments, etc. So you know, I mean, it really pulled me in. Uh, and I couldn't work out what was going on either. That was the other thing. I was thinking, oh, oh, oh no, I'd, oh. And there was, and then occasionally you'd get a cracker of a line coming. Oh, blimey! So, it, it, yeah. But that first five minutes, are sort of awful Tory public school boy. Yeah. <laughs> it's very good, I think. <laughs> the the audio clip that we that we played where they introduce themselves and it's all with their silly nicknames and their surnames and they had their little shorthand to describe. I mean, it felt like a Brit film filmic, mm. and and it essentially it's kind of imagine um, if you crowbarred some dark gags into deliverance and set it in the sort of Scottish... Yeah, um, with a touch of legal uh, gentleman. Yeah, you know, ab- ab- absolutely. I mean, it really, it's so refreshing. Tonally, it was really mm. perfectly pitched because it plays with you. There's sort of an elements of pastiche in there. You kind of hate these characters, but then all of a sudden, as mm. things change, tonally, you start to sort of side with them a little bit and then they'll say something that's mm. completely alienates you and you hope that they I know, I mean, meet it, a nasty it, it, end. It feels very original and it feels uh, like I haven't seen it before and it feels like this is exactly what BBC comedy should be And doing. it's perfect BBC Two you as know, well, BBC I would Two, say. yeah. It, I mean, it, it, to me, it, it feels like a real treat. It really does. Um, is it three, gr- three And parts? everyone's three a good, parts. you know, great actors. It's a, oh, filled yeah. with Fantastic you know, cast. incredible yeah. cast. But no, it, it looks amazing. It, looks, it look, does look filmic. It's a big, it looks expensive. It looks big. It feels big. Um... And it's just got enough clever twists to make you go, ooh. And the desperation on the part of the development producer to get his ITV2 show away <laughs> uh, just, I think, maybe hit, hit home for some of us around the table, Stephen. Yes, yes. Uh, that, was the, that was the most horrific moment for me. <laughs> okay. He get his 3G signal. <laughs> no, he couldn't. It's well, worth a, uh, it's well worth a watch, even if you're not a development producer. Would we agree? Yes. 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 Fantastic. Stag is made by BBC In-House and Idiot Lamp Productions for BBC Two, uh, and it launches this Saturday at 9pm. Uh, talking of stag do's, it's time for us to lock up the bar. Uh, we are done for this episode of Talking TV. Thanks to my guests, Nicola Lloyd, Chris Curtis and Stephen D. Wright. Uh, thanks to you lot for listening as well. Hope you've enjoyed it. Uh, my name's Jake Cantor and the producer was Matt Hill. Goodbye for now. You've been listening to Broadcast, Talking TV, recorded at Maple Street Studios. <laughs>